Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Boyd Teagarden at Natalie's Estate Winery. It's uh, July 15th, 2019. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Boyd. We really Absolutely. appreciate this. Uh, let's start you off by asking uh, why wine? Why wine? Well, in 1988, when I graduated from Kansas State University, I wanted to get into sales. I had um, working through the uh, recruiting office, went through the testing, and they said, you know, one of those um, tests where it tells you what you should mm-hmm. do with your career, and it said sales. So my goal was to get into consumable sales because I wanted that relationship building. Um, at that time, was uh, lucky enough to get a job with the E&J Gala Winery in Denver, Colorado. Uh, in their management program. Um, At that time, back in the late 80s, was when Gallo was moving out of not just being in the retail sector, but into the restaurant sector Mm -hmm. with their sales, marketing, and branding approach. So I was a part of that team to start with that in Denver, which was one of Gallo's training facilities. Uh, Started working with them first two years. Um, At the beginning, quite honestly, wasn't into wine. Uh, my goal was to be the national sales manager, the E&J Gallo Winery, and run um, a very respected consumable sales company. Wine was a widget. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Kansas. I drank Coors Light. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, wine was not uh, big in the global scale here in America yet. Um, it was still one of those products that people had either at a special occasion or at holidays. It was not really consumed on a day-to-day basis. So it, I was never really connected to wine, but I, but I enjoyed the sales side, and I enjoyed the learning. And I don't know how much uh, people are aware of Gallo, and most people are very aware of their sales and training program, but they're in essence the Procter & Gamble of the wine business. So having that opportunity to learn from them, uh, did very well in Denver, and was able to get a promotion to South Florida. And at that point, Gallo was putting their salespeople that had come up through their organization into bigger distributors around the country. So Southern, Premier, Young's Market, these were all distributors that uh, were being able to have Gallo trained people come in and be integrated within their sales force, which is what I did. At that point, I was given the opportunity to start learning about other wines. Um, at Premier Beverage, we, had, we were a global company. We had everything from Banffy to the Druin book to the Cobram book to Camus, Duckhorn, Chalk Hill. So we had a great book. We had a huge um, beverage book in the whiskeys. We were the Bacardi house, the Hiram Walker house, the Absolute house. <clears throat> and why I, I specify that is that is where it gave me the opportunity to really start learning about wine. Mm-hmm. Is working in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, and Palm Beach Island, everybody in the world wanted to come work those markets because they had some of the best restaurants <laughs> and some of the shakers and movers in the country. Mm-hmm. So every day 
I would get these guys coming in from all around the world to get in my car to go sell wine and I started learning about wine and that's where the bug really took off. Um, got the opportunity to travel with Premier Beverage to Europe, start going to these wineries that I was selling, um, the additional training that Gallo was doing, the additional training that Premier Beverage was doing, my knowledge in the wine production side was getting more and more in tune um, and that was really the springboard. And then, uh, that was in 1990 when I started down there. So I spent two years in Denver. I went to Miami in 1990. In 1994, I met my wife and decided we were going to get, we decided to get married and that we wanted a child, to have a child. We both loved living in South Florida. My wife was doing the corporate thing for Sabre, which was the computer division of American Airlines. <sighs> so we were not from South Florida. Um, she was from Southern California and I was from Kansas, so we wanted to get west. So at that point, I went to Bill Canine, who was my VP of sales for Gallo out in Atlanta, and sat in his office and he leaned back in his chair and I said, Bill, I said, I, I need a, I'd love to, to get a, a transfer. I'd love to go back west and explain to him why. He said, that sounds great. He goes and he looks me at the eye and he says, well, what about Portland? And I looked at him and I said, Bill, I said I didn't want to go to the East Coast. Why would I want to go to Portland, Maine? He said, no, Portland, Oregon. And I said, well, okay. And at that time, we had the Druin. Druin was down there in South Florida, and we had Archery Summit. Those were the two, only two brands that I sold from Oregon in South Florida. So I knew a little bit about the state, but nothing in general. Washington wines were not even really on the map then yet. I mean, they were there, but they were not a dominant player. They were a regional player. So I came out to Oregon and started to work for Valley Wine Company. Uh, Valley Wine Company was the old Juicy Wine Company, mm -hmm. which in some of your discussions, you may have heard the name Al Juicy. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a very interesting story. Al Juicy and Ernest Gallo were friends because um, Carlo Rossi, who is actually a real person, mm -hmm. was Al Giusti's son's godfather. Okay. So when Al Giusti was sick with cancer, he went to Ernest Gallo and asked Ernest to buy his company. So Ernest bought Al Giusti's company at that time. And that was back in the day when it was Giusti Wine Company versus the Miletus brothers. Miletus guys controlled the beer and Al Giusti controlled the wine business in the state. So Ernest bought Giusti Wine Company and started Valley Wine Company. So now all of a sudden Gallo owns a distributor that has all these other brands and they have all of the sales force that's never experienced or worked with multi-brands from around the world. That's where I came into play. Gallo was able to pull me from South Florida and put me in the distributor up here. So that's where um, my relationship in the real Oregon wine industry started is with all the brands. So we were the Oak Knoll House, we were the Sokol Blosser, the Argyle, and Elk Cove. Mm -hmm. And back then, David O'Reilly, who was the owner of Owen Rowe that started Shanaean with Peter Rosbach, was the national sales manager <laughs> of Oak Knoll, or, Owen, or uh, Elk Cove. Mm -hmm. Elk Cove was one of the brands that Valley Wine sold. Well, David and I hit it off very well, and this was in 1995, and David said, hey, you need to come help my buddy and I, Peter Rosbach, and Peter was working at Tektronix. He was an engineer at Tektronix then. 
We both got day jobs. We just started this brand called Shanann, and we're making this old Vines Inn up at Medici, and we need help. And I was like, perfect. This was my chance to take all of that information and knowledge and training and exploring wineries all over the world and actually start to make wine. So for 95 through 99, Peter, David, and I, they were over at Medici. We made the Chenin Ovines in there and then started making the residence Pinot Noir there. That's where I met Carla and Kevin Chambers. Um, and I started meeting Lonnie Wright from the Dows, the Pines Vineyard, where the Ovines Inn comes from. And, and then Mike Sauer from Red Willow Vineyard up in Yakima. And Joe Hathrop from Eld Mountain up in the Yakima Valley. Well, those are all growers that we worked with over the years at Shanann. And then in 99, I was up for a corporate move again. There were some changes going on in the Northwest, and they wanted to move us to California. Hmm. And my wife and I had fell in love with the area. We, you know, and lucky enough, working with Gallo, I had seen not only nationally what was going on with the numbers, but what locally really was going on with the sales numbers, both in vineyard planting and sales cases sold. And it was like, now's the time. And that was 1999. You know, the market was troughed out here. Um, there was this, as we, have, you know, a lot of people have talked about, there was this resurgence of people coming to the valley then. So we decided to jump off the corporate bandwagon found this property in 1999 and uh, moved in here actually on my my daughter's first birthday May 6 1999 we we got the keys of this place moved in and that's when we started the winery so last month or two months ago was our 20th anniversary that's awesome so that's how we got here <laughs> a long story congratulations but. on the anniversary that's, oh that's, thank that's, you that's thank awesome. you thank you tell me about when you made the jump from knowing all this stuff about wine and kind of having an interest in it to actually getting in and making it tell me what that was like and what the process was like kind of learning how to make wine and learning uh, all the processes i truly don't think you know wine until you've made wine it's very easy to be extremely book knowledgeable on where grapes come from and what grapes should taste like in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. And farming is not a perfect thing and winemaking is not a perfect thing. So I think that was really when I really started to understand wine, was learning what really went into and why there was so much passion and drive to succeeding in wine was how connected people were to it if that makes sense it does did you feel it right away oh yeah i'd already felt that i felt that way when when um I had started with Peter and them back in 95 and we had started making wine and do it. by the time we had got to we're going to do it oh yeah <laughs> it was this is the thing we have to do can you do you have an idea what it was that appealed to you about the process was there something about it that drew you in the actual like wine making probably the reward the reward of being somewhere where people don't know who you are and they're having some of your wine that you've made and they say god that's really good <laughs> that was probably the most rewarding thing and the thing that really was like okay good what we're doing they like the style they like 
they understand. Yeah, I would say that. Sure. So tell me, you mentioned you found this property. Tell me how you found it and what appealed about, what about it appealed to you. Well, we found it by dumb luck. We were actually looking at property up the hill and we were with the realtor and we were driving down Shehalem Drive and there was a little sign out at the road that said for sale by owner and we were in the back seat of the real estate car, you know, vehicle and I just tapped my wife on the leg and I just pointed and so we went down, said our thank yous to the realtor, got back in our car and came back up the hill. We turned in and came in to the driveway. Now before that, I had known the style of wine that I liked. I liked the style of wine that is a bigger, more robust style of wine. I like that bigger style Pinot Noir. So in knowing that, I had talked with a lot of the old farmers and, and found that I needed a warmer site. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from the old farmers, not the old grape farmers, but the old farmers that farmed here was that you need to look for an old walnut orchard or an old prune orchard. <laughs> and the reason for that is those areas where those trees grow need to be a warmer seat, warmer area so that because the tree needs to flower early mm -hmm. because it's a very long ripening cycle. So that being said, when we pulled into this driveway, as you come in, it's an old dilapidated walnut orchard. And I'm like, gosh, I hope the house is nice because <laughs> this is the perfect due south facing. Uh, the lower part of our vineyard is 320 feet elevation. The upper part is 420 feet elevation. It's a little bowl. If you look back at the ground, you'll see it's a little south facing bowl, which in essence works to be a little bit of a heat trap mm -hmm. for us. Black walnuts, now used to be English walnuts, but now uh, cloned back over to, to, to black walnuts. Um, it was like, this is it, this is it. I hope the house looks good. <laughs> so when we bought the property, the only thing here was the home and a two car garage with a studio apartment. So what we did is in 99 when we started, we rented space over at Medici's and started planting the vineyard. Mm -hmm. The upper two blocks, we started planting, putting the deer fence in and all of the, the infrastructure. Then in 2003, we brought the same builder in to extend out this, excavate down into the hill to build the winery. So that it, and the idea was that it looks like it was all built at once, but it was actually built probably 12 years apart. Uh, and then in 2003, that fall, we moved the production over here. And then the next year we opened up the tasting room and so on and so forth. So we've been at this physical location uh, as far as full production since 2003. Those first um, three vintages we were over at uh, Medici's mm -hmm. making the wine. So tell me about growing grapes and uh, the kind of learning process as you were planting and, and installing grapes here. Uh, a curve. Uh, I grew up a farmer. Uh, my family grew up soybean farming. So I grew up driving a tractor, that, that type of thing was not new to me. Mm -hmm. um, where the sharp learning curve was the amount of handwork. The amount of handwork, the delicacy of the grapevine to powdery mildew. Um, until you've lived it, you can't imagine what an evil creature that can be and how hard it is to keep it eradicated from your vineyard. Mm -hmm. That was probably the steepest learning curve is the amount of handwork needed. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, back when we started, there was the theory and philosophy in the valley that you could only make ultra premium Pinot Noir on one and a half to two tons to the acre. Mm -hmm. So we, we farm things very differently back then than we do now. Um, so that has changed also, which is which has been a fun learning cycle to see how less is not sometimes more. Mm -hmm. You know, it needs to be a balance in there and a balanced crop load is very important. And to see how that our knowledge of as local farmers and wineries how we've learned how different sites can handle different crop loads different leaf management programs all of that has been a real fun learning cycle i would say now in my career i used to love the winemaking the most now i love the farming the most because i think i've really grown enough to know that the wine is really made in the field it's not made in the cellar <laughs> You can change it in the cellar, but you can't make it in the cellar. It's made in the field. So tell me about your, your farming practices a little bit. What, is it, what does it mean to you to farm sustainably? Sustainably farming to me is, is biodiversity. I mean, I think it's, you know, we've, we've kind of run a lot of different trails, you know. Um, unfortunately, we, we chase trends. Um, and sustainable is sometimes as much as we want to form organic, sometimes sustainable may be better than organic. Mm -hmm. uh, and to have that openness to be able to not be just committed so strongly to one thing, I think has helped. I mean, we try to farm everything to the to organic ability we can. We try to stay with a 50-50 plan, you know, so we've got uh, easements, setbacks, natural forest land, to try to, you know, create that biodiversity that we're looking for out there. Um, and I think just by doing that, healthy place, healthy grapes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No? Tell me about what you decided, how you decided what you wanted to plant and, and uh, sort of the effect you've seen your farming practices have on the, on the grapes. Well, um, what we, I think, you know, we, we needed to plant Pinot Noir. I mean, that's what grows here. That's what's suited here. That's what grows the best here. Um, so that's what we decided to do on our estate property. Um, I, what I do love about Oregon wine country is the diversity that we do have. Mm -hmm. I mean, the beauty and the access that we have to grapes, whether it be in Southern Oregon, Central, or Eastern Oregon is amazing. All within a two to three hour drive mm -hmm. is really incredible. Um, this area obviously is, is known for Pinot Noir and, and it's amazing to see in the last eight years, I will say, the notoriety on a global scale. And not just people who are into wine and famous areas. Um, we take groups every year to Europe, to different small wine growing areas. And whether we're in Campania, in Piedmont, the south of France, Spain, Eight years ago, you walked in and said, uh, oh, you know, we have a winery. This is my group from, from Oregon. We, it would be, well, where's Oregon? Where's Oregon? Above California. Oh, okay. Now, no matter where you go, we're from Oregon. Ah, Pinot Noir. <laughs> Pinot. But in eight years, that's amazing mm -hmm. to see us come from such obscurity on a global scale. Now, I know the wine writers knew about us and the nice restaurants, but to say the average person who enjoys wine or works at a small winery in the south of France to say, ah, Pinot Noir, when you say Oregon, that's pretty amazing, mm -hmm. I it think. Is.
Yes. Um, tell me about the other things you make here then besides Pinot Noir. So we have vineyards, um, as I mentioned, Lonnie Wright um, is a grower that we've continued to work with since we started in 99 uh, through that relationship with Shanaean. Um, so we get Zinfandel um, that we make from um, Lonnie, which is, we don't get any of the old vine, but we get uh, his vineyard with cuttings from the old vine. Uh, then we get some hillside cab, which uh, was planted back in 85. Mm -hmm. So some of the older cab uh, in the, actually in the mm -hmm. state. Um, also we get McDuffie cab from Lonnie in the Dalles there again, planted in 85. Um, so we get those varietals there. And then we work with Mike Sauer, um, very famous grower up in Eastern Yakima. Um, you know, brought the first Syrah into the state of Washington, brought the first Sangiovese into the state of Washington. So very, you know, um, pioneer in his, his own right. Mm -hmm. We get Cabernet from him. We get uh, Cabernet Franc and Sangiovese from him. And then Joe Hathrop, we get Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, Petit Verdot from him. So those are the other varietals that we've really, over the years, we've done Tempranillo, we've done Syrah, we've kind of played around, but those are kind of the varietals of the last three or four years that we've really started to hone in on. And why is that? What about those varietals? Well, that's where I've got to put both my love of wine and winemaking hat on and my business hat on. Um, some of those varietals just are not in what we need them to do, being able to sell themselves enough in other arenas besides the tasting room. Mm -hmm. They always do well in the tasting room, but in the restaurant sector, in the retail sector, those varietals we've had a tough time getting traction with. Mm -hmm. Whereas the main varietals, the key varietals, Cab, Pinot Noir, um, those have done tremendously well um, for us. And you look at the Nielsen scan data shows you with the trending of purchases, those are the brands or the types of varietals that are in a still a growing mm -hmm. spectrum. So you talked about how you kind of started with the winemaking and have kind of come into the farming now as you being your favorite part. So tell me about, though, you, you talked about your farming philosophy a little bit. So tell me about your winemaking philosophy and what you uh, sort of are hoping to achieve. Oh, yes. I, I would define and, and we kind of brand and, and market ourselves as old world winemaking. So um, a very hands-off approach. You know, a lot of people like to throw the buzzword around natural winemaking. Um, what I would say is an old world, more hands-off, um, I feel my job is to grow or find a grower that can grow really good grapes and have very high standards there. Our job is to just usher them through the cellar. Um, I don't use a lot of new wood. I tend to age a little longer in barrel uh, on the uh, bigger varietals because I don't use a lot of new wood and let them soften naturally, um, very much like you would see in France or in Italy uh, in that degree. Um, not a lot of manipulation at all in the fermentation process. We don't use any enzymes or any nutrient builders or anything like that. Uh, we do use uh, yeast um, mm -hmm. because of the alcohol levels that we're dealing with, especially with some of the things coming in from Eastern Oregon. Um, we want to make sure that we're able to ferment everything dry because we bottle all of our reds here unfiltered and unfined. Um, mm -hmm. One of the stories you always hear in, in France and in Italy from the old winemakers is to filter a wine is to strip the soul from the wine. And 
to be able to, to be an unfiltered wine, you've got to make sure obviously that you've got a clean, fresh wine with no bacterial issues, but also you've got to make sure that you've fermented all that uh, RS or residual sugar out of the wine so that you do have a stable, dry wine. Mm -hmm. So um, we work really hard to accomplish that. And then from there on, we just naturally let it settle, um, racking the wines. The big reds we rack two to three times prior to bottling. Pinot Noir we never rack uh, at all from time it goes into bottle till uh, the time we blend it for bottling. Interesting. Tell me about the the uh, kind of evolution of, of Natalie's estate from when you got started here, you mentioned the winery here on ground opened up in 2003. Talk about kind of the growth you've gone through, some of the things you've, kind of milestones along the way. Well, um, one of the interesting things that we had to start our model kind of very differently um, when we started because as I said, I was transitioning out of Gallo when we started this in 99. I continued to work with Gallo until 2003 when we built this facility. So one of the things early on I had to do with Gallo, which everybody laughs about this, is Gallo was very good. They knew what I was doing and they were very supportive. Uh, but the one thing that they requested is that I sign a no-compete clause in the state of Oregon. Because they felt, because I was in the state working for them, running their distributor, selling brands and working selling other companies brands for them that I shouldn't sell my wine in the state. So for the first three years I never sold any wine in the state of Oregon. <laughs> now lucky for me I had come up through the channel with Gallo and working inside the distributors and at my age now all these guys that I had worked with now had started to fan out across the US and were inside other distributors. Mm -hmm. So when we first started we sold hundred percent wholesale but we sold in Chicago we sold in Hawaii, we sold in Seattle, we sold in Virginia, and we sold in uh, Oklahoma. And those were all contacts with people that I had worked with in my younger years at Gallo had now dispersed out into these management jobs and distributors around the country. So I was able to meet with them and get them on board to promoting our wines. So we started selling 100% wholesale. Uh, through wholesale. Mm -hmm. Then in 03, when we walked away from Gallo and, and finally went full time, I could start selling direct. That's when we built the tasting room and started selling A, within the state of Oregon uh, as a distributor with domain selections and then through our tasting room. Mm -hmm. Now as we've evolved, we've been able to pull back the majority of that wholesale distribution to sell it all direct. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be the biggest kind of business model shift that you've seen. Currently now we only sell in Oregon, in Montana, in Utah, in Kansas, and in Ohio. Interesting. And the reason for that is um, in, 19, in 2005 I was selling wine in Montana. I had a buddy here in Oregon that said, hey, I got a friend in Montana that's starting a distributor. He's looking for brands. I said, okay. So I flew to Bozeman, met this guy. They started selling our wine. I went there that winter to Big Sky, which is a resort outside of mm -hmm. between Yellowstone. Had a great time, skied, sold wine. That's one of my passions. I came home, I told my wife, I said, Big Sky, Montana is Vail, Colorado in 1980. And I said, if we don't buy a home there now, we'll never be able to afford to. So we bought our first condo there. So that's why we stay in Montana selling wine, is we have a home there uh, 
I fish and ski a lot, mm -hmm. so that's why we moved into Utah. Is um, had a seller club member, friend who wanted to get in the business. She came out, worked a harvest, wanted to get in the industry, and I brought up. She lived in Utah. I brought up the idea to her of starting a small brokerage company in Utah to represent small brands because in Utah to sell wine you have to have work through a broker that must live in the state of Utah. So consequently she opened up a small brokerage company and uh, now we sell wine and I can go to Utah and ski so it works really good. <laughs> I'm from Kansas so that just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then Ohio because in Big Sky um, through the dinners and events that we've done there over the years, I met a gentleman who I became friends with that owns a restaurant chain called Pies and Pints in Ohio, and they wanted our Cabernet for their wine to be by the glass mm -hmm. in their restaurants in Ohio. So that's why we're in Ohio. <laughs> but it's all a relationship <laughs> business. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Uh, tell me about selling wine now versus when you started Natalie's Estate. Tell me what the differences are, especially for in, in Oregon. Uh, with uh, you, you mentioned going from the mostly distributor to mostly DTC now. Uh, why and, and how are you faring in the new marketplace? Well, we're faring okay. Um, I think we're lucky that we're 20 years old. And when I say that, I mean I would. it is very hard to be new right now. Um, the consolidation of the distributor business and the grocery business in the United States is the biggest challenge that small and mid-sized wineries face in the short-term and long-term future. Um, as I was mentioning, back when we started selling wholesale, or let's say back in the early 2000s, in any major market in the United States, there would be anywhere from 10 to 20 wholesalers, ranging in size from the bulimoth big guy, 800-pound gorilla on the wall, to the little small boutique, maybe French-only guy. But there was a home for everybody. Mm -hmm. Also back then, there was a lot of regionalized grocery chains and wine stores and mm -hmm. shops, depending on the, the state laws and regulations that each state has. But there were a lot more opportunities for the small and mid-sized winery to get in get in front of people. Mm -hmm. But as consolidation in the grocery business has really shrank the major grocery business in the U.S. down to five chains. You've seen that same thing with distributors. Let's look at Portland as an example. You know, in Portland today there's basically two major players and then maybe four or five small guys other than that. That's all there is left. With an emerging wine industry that's went in Oregon from what, back in the mid-90s, 100, 125 to over 750 now? Mm -hmm. It's an un, um, unrealistic change in volume. So now, a small guy like uh, me or a, even a 10,000 case brand decides to says, I'm going to go set up shop in Chicago and try to sell wine. Okay, here are the three choices you have. And within those three choices, each one has a you know, a 200 page price list. Mm -hmm. How You just get lost. Mm -hmm. And the poor salesman today is every day there's a new person in their car. So today I'm selling Elk Cove. Tomorrow I'm selling Natalie's. The next day I'm selling whoever the next winery may, may be. And you just are not getting peace of mind anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that was really nice about 
when we had a lot of distributors is the big distributors would take care of the big guys. So Gallo, Constellation, KJ, all those guys would be in the big guys. They had distributions, channels, they, they could manage those books. Mm -hmm. So the middle distributors, the smaller distributors, they would take the more esoteric brands, the small brands, the brands that took hand selling. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were known for. Now all those are engulfed into one distributor Guess, who's, guess who gets left out? Mm -hmm. The small and middle guy. He doesn't have the money for the incentives. And he's not bringing enough revenue to the bottom line mm -hmm. that the senior management and distributor care about the brand. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. That's why everybody is chasing that direct-to-consumer business so hard. It's very lucrative. You know, um, basically you're going to make 60% more money by selling it in the distributor than you or in the direct to consumer than you are to a distributor. That's huge. It's huge. That's huge. So how have you gone about doing that then? What are your kind of... Well, I think it, you see? for us, there again, um, I think being involved in the wine business when there wasn't so many wineries uh, helped. Also our diversity. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I learned very quickly in the wine business was that people who are into wine are very exploratory. And what I mean by that is they explore and eat all different kinds of foods, they drink all different kinds of wines, they drink all different kinds of beers. So when we started this, that's who we were. And my wife and I said, you know, no one's doing it really here. A few wineries are, but no one's really focused on it. That's who we are. We have all this access to these great vineyards within a couple of hours of here. Why don't we do that? And the beauty of us starting when we did is, you know, the land prices were right. We could get involved. We both basically we went to the cashed our 401ks in and went to the come line is what we did here and bought this with all of our 401k money. You can't do that now. You need investors. Yeah. Um, and by us doing it alone, we weren't, you know, having to be held responsible to a venture capitalist mm -hmm. or somebody that wants my 10% return right now. So we were able to go outside the market, find these other grapes, start making the wine, and then building that local clientele that, oh, oh, Natalie's, they do cab. Oh, let's go try this. Let's go try that other varietal. Oh, I've heard about this varietal. Mm -hmm. And that's how and why um, we wanted to do the multiple varietals from the beginning. So tell me about the other uh, wineries and vineyards that you uh, work with, consult with, uh, kind of how that came up. Yeah, that's, that's kind of been a, just an, um, a growth of where we're going, mm -hmm. you know, um, as we're getting older, quite honestly, as we're getting older, uh, I needed to bring in employee. So we brought in a full-time um, employee to help me in the cellar and in the vineyard. Connor, his, he's on his third vintage with us. Um, it's allowed me to free up a little more time to go do some other things. And enjoying the farming and being connected to that, that was a much greater interest than making more wine and having to go on the road and start selling wine again. I've done that for 20 years, you know. <laughs> I would much rather work with a local vineyard and, and help them out. So what we've done is, uh, we work very closely with Lonnie Wright from the Pines Vineyard out in the Gorge uh, with uh, several of his wines 
um, that he's got. Um, we have a small vineyard just up the hill here that uh, got planted three years ago, a little two-acre vineyard that we've been working with. And then we have um, a gentleman starting a small project up in the Yakima Valley that we know through some vineyard through the vineyards that we work with mm -hmm. up there. Mm -hmm. So um, those are our, our first little dabbles into the consulting and uh, it's been a fun ride. It's been a fun ride. How, what do you, how do you define your role as a vineyard consultant? Well, that's what I think we're trying to offer something a little different is there's no set pattern because what I've noticed as, as the vineyard have grown here in the valley, a lot of the vineyard management companies here want to be uh, involved in all aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to be piecemealed. They don't want to be used only for pruning or only for handwork. Mm -hmm. They want to have all the business. And they want the owner of the land to provide all the equipment. Mm -hmm. Well, once I took a step back and looked at, there's a lot of small little vineyards popping up here that don't fit within that dynamics mm -hmm. that the bigger consulting companies are wanting to deal with. So what we thought is, let's provide a service where you can pick and choose what you would need help with. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something to do with the winery, whether it be marketing and branding, or maybe it'd be something to do with in the cellar, or maybe it's something to do in the field. You can pick and choose, and then we'll build a pro proportionately to mm -hmm. that versus we want it all or none. Mm -hmm. We're not doing any custom crush or anything like that. Um, this is strictly a consulting uh, position. Like an a la carte consulting. Correct, exactly, yeah, exactly. There used to be that service in the valley, mm -hmm. but as the vineyards have grown in size, we're getting bigger players in the market, the size of the vineyards are growing, those guys have kind of transitioned into those mm -hmm. type of situations. So you work on some different vineyards now than you had before. Tell me about kind of the differences that you're seeing in the different vineyard sites you work with. Well, they're all, you know, working with somebody that is just beginning in the vineyard and growing grapes forgets how tough and vigorous a grapevine is. <laughs> and they tend to be way too gentle on it. So a lot of the time you spend, I'm spending right now with people, is getting them to understand how vigilant you have to be on the plant as far as just on top of your work mm -hmm. and how healthy and strong it can grow. Mm -hmm. Because most of the vineyards are young that I'm dealing with. They're not a 30-year-old vineyard that's up and growing and now I'm seeing kind of how that's different than my vineyard that's 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Right now, everybody I'm working with is on younger vineyards. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about the, uh, the sort of the industry in general a little bit. Uh, what are some of the, in addition to pure size, which we've already right. talked about, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry since you became a part of it? The biggest changes. Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the most interesting changes has been the international money that's came to the valley. You know, the Druins have been here for a long time, um, but as we've started to see Jadot and all of these different smaller uh, burgundy houses start to come to town, that is probably the biggest shift and the, probably the biggest surprise. I would have never guessed that in the beginning. I would have never guessed that. Um, 
it's gotten a lot more competitive. Um, the industry, it was just a smaller industry then, you know, um, people got together more. Um, there's a lot of non-on-site ownership now, where it used to be a lot of on-site ownership. Um, so that's kind of odd, you know, you don't, um, yeah, I don't know, that, that's a tough question, <laughs> that's a tough question, because I instantly go to the business side of it, mm -hmm. well, tell me about and that I would say the competitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, we have grown so fast in the number of wineries, and it's been very challenging to grow our tourist population base as fast as we've grown the number of wineries. And I'm continually amazed and shocked at how many times I have people come in the tasting room that live in Portland that never come to wine country. Gosh, I've lived here for five years and I've never came out. So I don't know how we tap into that person and get them out into the valley or to get them to want to come to the valley. But um, to me, that's where you know, you see the industry, we've just moved, moved to bring in a, a person to, to work specifically on tourism in Yamhill County for the off season, mm -hmm. regardless if it's for wine, for anything, just to try to bring that person here. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we need. We need that shot in the arm um, to continue this cycle. Mm -hmm. Because at this pace, we don't have enough tourists to satisfy the number of wineries it's going to become an issue. So let's talk about that as you look ahead, say 10 years in the future in Oregon wine, what do you, what do you see happening? Well, my hope is that the federal, on the federal level, they come up with a better solution on how we as small producers can work cross state lines. Because now I think it's going to become kind of like the scenario I mentioned in Ohio or how I got involved with that restaurant chain, is we as small producers are gonna to have to now start getting out and trying to build those relationships where we, in the past, we've used our distributor to build those relationships. Mm -hmm. We've gotta figure out a way to bypass that distributor because he's not doing us any favors right now as a small guy, not doing us any favors. Mm -hmm. So I think we've gotta A, figure out how, hope the federal government comes up with a better way. Wish we could have more people ship wine and because right now UPS and FedEx has a monopoly on it. Um, I think if we could get those two things addressed, it would help us be able to ship wine across state lines into retailers and restaurateurs, mm -hmm. would really help the small guy um, be able to grow their business. Because it's nice to say you're gonna sell all your wine direct, and yeah, when you start out and you're making two, three, four hundred cases, you might sell it all direct, mm -hmm. but as you ramp up or scale up in volume, you need that outside sales to be able to make it survive. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, it's gonna be a tough road. So those kinds of things don't happen the way you're hoping. You're, do you, what do you see happening to the small wineries here in Oregon? Do you see consolidation? Do you see, what is it you see? Yeah, the wine business has always been an interesting business to me because I thought we would have saw, saw, seen that in 08 and 09 mm -hmm. when the market went down. Mm -hmm. When banks pulled lines of credit, things became very tight. You know, that's when we saw 
the distributor consolidation start. That's when we saw the grocery business consolidation start. Mm -hmm. I thought at that point we would start to see wineries either consolidate, get bought out, or just close their doors. But there's something about that connection. You asked me earlier, is it the wine? Is it the farming? Mm -hmm. There's a something about that combination that people will hang on till they've got no hanging. They own a shoe store, they own a bookstore, they own a coffee shop. Business is bad, they'll walk away from it. Mm -hmm. For some reason in the wine business, they'll hold on till the very, very end. It is <laughs> truly amazing, truly amazing. Well, we've, we've definitely heard in interviews over the years, these referred to as children, you know, the winery as a, as yeah. a child. So I kind of I kind of get that. I see where you're, where you're coming from with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, what about for yourself? What do you see for yourself and for Natalie's estate as you look into the future? Well, I, you know, our goal is just to continue um, to make good wine. We're slowly growing. Um, there's certain categories that we're going to expand in that have done very well for us. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're lucky enough to have a, a really good assistant with Connor on board and um, try to keep him happy. You know, that's the main thing right now is keeping the employees happy. Um, but keep him happy and just slowly grow methodically mm -hmm. because our business is DTC, direct to consumer. And I don't want to grow too quickly and have to rely on that wholesale sales too much. Mm -hmm. Are there any any uh, projects or changes on the horizon you're excited about? Anything you're anything you're thinking of trying? Uh, no, I mean we're like I say we're just expanding. Um, we're expanding our Pinot Noir program. Mm -hmm. um, we're expanding our Rosé program. Mm -hmm. Those have done tremendously well for us. So we planted some more. We planted another 500 vines last year. So we're just slowly. We have about another five acres that we can plant over time here. Um, so our growth is all going to be on site with investing in the land and investing in putting more vineyards in mm -hmm. as Pinot Noir grows. I mean, you know, when, gosh, I, I don't even know if it was 2% of the sales. When I started in the wine business in 1988, I don't even know if it would have made 1% of the sales on national scale. <laughs> so to see where it went from 1% to when I started here in 89, maybe it was two or three percent to see how big that category is now. I'm excited to, that I think it's gonna to continue to grow. So we're gonna just continue to plant more grapes here and expand in that sector. Sure. What is it about Pinot Noir? Why, why, do, you, why do you have the faith in it? Why have you seen it grow? Like, what is it about Pinot Noir that, that uh, is so attractive to people? I think it's a little lighter styled red I think we went through that phase. You saw that phase of big, bold, extracted, heavily extracted, high oak wines. And I think now we're moving back into a little bit more of that European model where it's less new wood, a little tamer on the alcohols, a little less ripe fruit. And I think Pinot Noir plays beautifully into that style of wine that people are looking for. It's a little lower in alcohol. Um, what advice would you have someone give someone who was looking to join the Oregon wine industry today? Well, I, I think knowing how much capital you need to invest to start, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle I see a lot of, of small wineries 
fall into mm -hmm. is they forget the carrying cost. Um, you know, wine is not like scotch, or excuse me, not like vodka, or gin, or an IPA, where that turning cycle is very quick. Mm -hmm. um, so I think understanding that you need three to four years of working capital before you even put the first shovel in the ground is most importantly. Um, and don't build your business model when you take it to the bank on selling 100% DTC right off the bat because that's a very unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen unless you're making, you know, four barrels or two barrels or something, <laughs> then okay, that's great. But if you're seriously thinking about jumping right into it right off the bat, mm -hmm. you can't go in, and a lot of people do. All the questions that I have for you today. Okay. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't didn't? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your thoughts today. We really appreciate this, uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.